Jesus often taught with parables, it's true, and we often consider parables and stories generally as lovely things, powerful and memorable. There's a sower in a field scattering seed, one of Van Gogh's favorite subjects, and there's a father welcoming his son home, joyously celebrating his return. We build our lives around such lovely stories, and for that very reason, parables are dangerous. They're dangerous because they're powerful and memorable and because we build our lives around them. They're dangerous because they're often enigmatic, ambiguous, or at least flexible, open to different interpretations. Every one of Jesus' parables is a kind of sharp metal blade. Taking hold of it, we can turn it into a plowshare or into a sword. And the sharp edge in many of Jesus' parables, the line between the dueling interpretations, is often the line between, on the one side, a spirit of humility and generosity, and on the other side, a spirit of superiority and stinginess. In this episode, we'll look at two of these sharp metal blades, two of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the sower and the parable conventionally called the prodigal son. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. Vincent van Gogh painted or drew no less than 30 versions of the sower, inspired by the painter Jean-Francois Millet's painting on the theme, and, no doubt, given Vincent's background, with Jesus' parable of the sower ringing in his ears. There are very few other subjects, if any, that Vincent took up 30 times, and this suggests at least two things. First, that he found the theme to be crucially important, and second, that he found it to be elusive, or at least inexhaustible. There was something there that brought him back again and again, something he wanted to capture and convey. For one, the sower represented what Vincent called a dweller in nature, someone who lived close to the earth and its bounty, who lived a life of generosity, striding over the soil and scattering seed as he went along, the first steps toward a fruitful harvest. In the version he painted in November of 1888, what he described as an immense citron yellow disc for the sun is set behind the sower's head like a kind of halo, suggesting the sower is also a saint, or indeed an image of Christ, scattering blue and yellow seeds over the ground. In Luke's version of the parable, the sower casts the seed far and wide, and they take root, or not, according to the quality of the ground where they fall. Some fall on the path, and the birds come and eat them. Some fall on rocky soil and wither for lack of moisture. Others fall among thorns and can't grow. And some fall on good soil and take root and flourish. Let anyone with ears to hear listen, Jesus says. And then he goes on to explain the parable privately to his disciples. The seed, he says, is the word of God. And the bad conditions 
are obstacles. The devil, the temptation to superficial forms of faith that disappear in times of trial, the lure of decadence and riches, and the good soil. The good soil are those who receive the word with an honest and good heart, Jesus says, and who then bear fruit. Now, one way to read this parable is as an answer to a question that perplexed the earliest Christian communities. If God's child has come and taught and preached and healed in ways that many found compelling and life-changing, why wasn't that kind of response universal? Why did some fervently embrace Jesus, others fervently reject him, and still others remain indifferent? On the surface, this parable seems to explain why. Different people are in different circumstances. Some are more like rocky or thorny ground, or are more vulnerable to being led astray. And some are more like good soil, ready to receive and nourish and bear fruit. And there you have it. Sounds reasonable enough. And there, too, is the danger. I'm sure you've spotted it already. This way of reading the parable lures us into thinking that some people have honest and good hearts, and others, well, it's a shame, but others just aren't quite so honest or quite so good. At worst, this reading of the parable tempts us to turn away from such people, rocky and thorny as they are. And at best, this reading tempts us to condescend to such people, setting out to help them, you know, spread some compost on them, make them more like us. The parable often called the prodigal son presents a similar set of temptations. A son demands his inheritance early, in effect declaring his father dead to him already, and then goes and lives the high life for a while, squandering the money in the process. When the cash runs out, the son finds himself in a swine field, feeding the pigs, a kind of icon for a situation of disgrace. And then he gets up and returns home. His father welcomes him with joyful abandon, with a bear hug and a kiss, and orders a lavish celebration. The son's elder brother is angry, resenting that his father's never thrown a party for him, the loyal son who never left in the first place. Many interpreters focus on the younger son, which is how the parable gets its traditional name, the prodigal son or the wasteful son. The moral of the story, according to this view, is something like this. No matter how far you've fallen away, you can still get up and return to God, and God will welcome you home with open arms. So, you know, get up and return home. Right? There you have it. Sounds reasonable enough. And there's the danger. For this interpretation, common as it is, not only misses the point of the parable, it makes a point that runs in the opposite direction. It reverses the parable's meaning. Well, that can't be right. I mean, everyone knows the younger son is lost and then hits bottom and repents and comes back home and the father welcomes him. How could that be the opposite of what Jesus is getting at? And that's just it. That's why this conventional reading of the parable 
is so dangerous because it seems right. It sounds right. So right that we don't even bother to go back to the parable and see what Jesus actually says. It all comes down to what happens in that swine field. The conventional reading is that the son hits bottom and that he's a self-serving scoundrel, but then he runs out of money, he's disgraced and ashamed, and so he vows to change his ways and heads back home. There's just one problem. That's not what happens in the parable. That's not what Jesus says here. What Jesus says is that the young man is out of money, yes, and he's in the swine fields working for some pig farmer, and he's feeding the pigs, and he is hungry. He's so hungry, he covets the food he's feeding to the pigs, and then it occurs to him that back home, his father has staff who work for him, hired hands who, come to think of it, eat pretty well better than this anyway. And so the son hatches a plan to get a better meal. He thinks to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll go back home and dad will be upset, of course, because I spent all his money and have nothing to show for it. So I'll apologize profusely. I'll say all the right words. Oh, woe is me. I've sinned against heaven and before you. And oh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. No, no, just... Just treat me like one of your hired hands, right? The hired hands, the ones who eat well. That's it. That's the famous repentance, which is no repentance at all, of course. This isn't contrition. This is a ploy. And to the extent that he camouflages his ploy under pretty words that sound like contrition, well, it's a con. He left home a self-serving con man, and he's returning a self-serving con man. And that fact puts everything else in the story in a different light. Remember, the father in the parable, the joyous parent who embraces the son before any speech is given, represents God. And God knows our hearts, our ploys, our cons, all too well. And God lavishly welcomes us anyway with open arms and a kiss. then something amazing happens. The son delivers his rehearsed apology, word for word, the script he had prepared in advance, except for that last phrase, treat me like one of your hired hands, which of course was the whole point, the reason he's come home, but he leaves it out. It's as if he's stunned overwhelmed by the Father's joy and grace, and all he can stammer is, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Maybe, just maybe, he's so overwhelmed by this welcome, by this gracious love, that his con is transformed into a genuine confession. The meaning of this welcome home isn't that the son has earned it or that he made it possible by his noble, humble repentance and return. That's the opposite of the meaning here. 
Repentance doesn't give rise to grace. Grace gives rise to genuine repentance. So that's the first way the conventional reading obscures and distorts the parable, in effect reversing it into its opposite. The second way is that it distracts from the reason Jesus tells the parable in the first place. As Luke has it, the context of this teaching is that Jesus is being criticized by some religious leaders, think bishops and priests, pastors and deacons, the ones who ostensibly are striving to follow the rules and follow God's law, and they take umbrage that Jesus would so liberally welcome rule breakers, tax collectors, for example, exploiting their own people on behalf of the Roman Empire. Jesus' answer, in effect, is this. Rule breakers? Listen, I came for the rule breakers. I'm like a shepherd so concerned with one lost lamb that I leave the other 99 to go find it. I'm like a woman who sweeps the whole house looking for a single coin. And when I find it, I'll throw an expensive party. Let me tell you a story. There once was a man who had two sons. Bearing this context in mind helps us see that the main character here, the figure in the parable on whom the spotlight falls, isn't the younger brother. It's the elder brother, the one who crosses his arms and refuses to join the celebration of his brother's return. That's the cliffhanger at the end of the parable. The father is beckoning the elder son into the party, and the question is, will he or won't he? Read in context, the parable is an exhortation to the religious leaders criticizing Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners to come and join the celebration. Will they or won't they? Will we or won't we? If we put ourselves in their shoes, we can feel the power of the objection. Wait a minute, you're just blithely welcoming these scoundrels in? Don't you know what they've done? The sin, the contempt, the the conspiring with the empire, and you just smile and offer them a seat at the table? We hear their little lip service apologies. You're buying that? You're, You're more naive than we thought. Listen, talk is cheap. Look at us. We've been walking the walk. That's what genuine faith looks like. And I'll tell you something. From experience, a little free advice, people don't change. No, a leopard doesn't change its spots. Or if they do, and I admit sometimes they do, they have to prove it. You have to give it some time. You don't just welcome them in. They have to prove themselves, and then we can talk about welcome. And there you have it. Sounds reasonable enough. It's that objection, that powerful perspective, that Jesus is countering in this parable. It's as if he says, yes, I hear you. There is an emotional truth here. I understand why you don't want to celebrate. In the parable, the elder son, it's an understandable reaction to say, hey, this isn't fair. And you're right. It isn't fair. Grace isn't fair. That's why we call it grace. None of us deserve it. Grace and mercy and joy, these aren't things we deserve. 
They're gifts given out of love. God embraces us despite what we've done. All of us, not just tax collectors and sinners, but every one of us. And in that embrace, in that welcome, God gives us an opportunity to truly change. Grace doesn't follow repentance, it makes repentance possible. Think about it practically. If the father in the parable stays at a distance, refuses to come out of the house until the child proves his contrition with an eloquent apology, well, what would have happened? The con man would deliver his script, get himself a better meal, and we'd be right back where we started. No change, no genuine transformation. Is it important to follow the rules? Of course. Is it important that our hearts change and grow and strengthen and open up over time? Of course. The practical question is, how do these things actually come to pass? And the answer is that God's love and grace, the embrace and the kiss, come first. Rule-following and heart-changing in order to prove ourselves, to earn our way into God's good graces, those efforts always fail in the end because deep down they're already on the wrong foot. Rule-following and heart-changing because God already is embracing us, already loves us, already calls us to step forward into who we really are, that's the change with the power to endure. That's the transformative power of grace in our lives. Acting and living not in order to receive God's love, but rather because of God's love in the first place. Because God's love is always in the first place. So the invitation is not to live in order to, but rather to live because of. And in that direction, on that fruitful path, is a life lived in the spirit of humble generosity, not in the spirit of stingy superiority. In that direction, on that fruitful path, is a life lived in celebration and joy. All of which brings us back to the sower. If we read the parable of the sower in the light of the parable of the prodigal son, which really should be called the prodigal sons, since the younger brother wastes money and the older brother wastes something far more valuable, an opportunity for joy, if we read the parable of the sower in that light, we can see that to take it as a form of self-congratulation, the good soil being us and the rocky and thorny ground being everybody else, that's reading in a spirit of stingy superiority. That's the danger to be avoided. And on the contrary, to read the parable of the sower in a spirit of humble generosity is to ask not will they or won't they cultivate their hearts into good soil, but rather will we or won't we cultivate our hearts with the Spirit's help into good soil? Will we or won't we? It's to get into the shoes of the older brother, or to recognize in all humility that we often do stand in those resentful shoes, that our hearts are sometimes rocky and thorny, 
that we sometimes dismiss others as tax collectors and sinners, that we regard with contempt Trump voters or Biden voters or people who don't vote at all or Muslims or Christians or people who reject religion entirely, that we sometimes hear a parable from Jesus and twist it around into a new way of looking down on someone else or even looking down on ourselves. But God will have none of it. God understands these con games we play and loves us anyway and calls us back again and again to the spirit of humble generosity. How should we read the parable of the sower? Start with this, that blue and yellow seed in Vincent's painting. It falls over the whole landscape, the path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, the good soil. God doesn't favor just one little patch, but holds out hope for the whole garden. The possibilities of change, of growth, of fruitfulness are everywhere. And then this, God's love is not divisive. It's not a sword cutting things up into parts. God loves the world, not a part of the world. God welcomes home the prodigal younger son, and God beckons in the prodigal older son. Despite their wastefulness, no one is left out. And the rocky and thorny ground, those aren't figures for parts of the population out there. They're figures for parts of ourselves in here. The conditions of the soil matter, but we're talking about the soil of the soul here. We're the ones who need the compost. Jesus is exhorting us again, just as in the case of the prodigal sons, to cultivate our own gardens, that we might be, with the Spirit's help, more receptive, more reflective of the graceful love of God. You can see it in Vincent's painting. The immense citron yellow disc for the sun, the blue and yellow seeds, the central tree evoking perhaps the shape of the cross, and at the same time, perhaps, the tree of life, beautiful and in bloom. A whole world of color, of growth and generosity and joy, receiving seeds and scattering seeds inside and out for the sake of the harvest to come. And if you haven't yet mastered the graceful choreography of love, well, join the club. But don't worry. If your first portrait of the sower isn't quite right, just paint another, and another, and another. Vincent made no less than 30. And after all, though he often felt himself to be a failure, the seeds he scattered all over the landscape, even today, beyond his wildest dreams, continue to grow. The Gospel According to Vincent is a mini-series by Strange New World, a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. And if you'd like to go deeper, SALT has a devotional called Vincent Van Gogh and the Beauty of Lent, which includes more details, activities, links to the paintings, and more. 
You can find it in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.